0: I'm black, you're white.
1: Now what? So what if I say the wrong thing?
0: You probably will. Who doesn't? But I'll do my best to listen. Maybe if we're humble enough to listen to each other. Maybe if we're brave enough to lean into those difficult conversations. We might. We could. Come up with some answers.
1: Make some real progress. Discover how much we have in common. And appreciate our differences. Now you're talking
0: Hello and welcome to another edition of I'm black you're white now what I'm David Conley communications consultant
1: and I am Chris Thurber clinical psychologist David it's great to see you we've got Barbara Mm -hmm. Rancunas who is an historian in the little old town of Exeter New Hampshire which I call home so we're really excited to have Barbara with us. Before we let Barbara introduce herself and, and tell us how she be- came to become the co-executive director of the Exeter Historical Society and what she has uncovered about the history of both white and Black people here in, in Exeter, um, we're just thinking back to the episode 21 that we did with Johanna Mazamo, mm-hmm. our friends from South Africa.
0: Man, that was... Um... It was very interesting on a lot of levels just to kind of uh, hear their thoughts about, you know, South Africa post apartheid and um, just how their educational system is trying to grapple with uh, teaching kids about that. And it was interesting to get like, you know, like a black perspective and a white perspective on that, both them being, you know, fathers and and also um, one way or the other in a position to educate people and young people about uh, different things. So it was also just, I found the juxtaposition between um, sort of them more recently dealing with some issues that we should be beyond you would think, but that we're still, you know, kind of grappling with uh, in, in some of the same ways. And so it's, yeah. I, I found it fascinating. How about you?
1: Yeah, no, I agree. And I think there it was touching to hear their um, perspectives as parents, as fathers in this case, and the sense of responsibility they felt they had for their young children to teach them, you know, a full accounting mm-hmm. that is age appropriate. But when I say full, I don't mean every fact, but every truth um, about the history of South Africa and, you know, their kids having been born in post-apartheid South Africa, but still seeing many of the inequities that exist. And obviously, as we'll be talking about with with Barbara Rancunas in a minute, uh, you you know, you change a, a federal law or policy the culture and the society and people's biases and prejudices don't change overnight. And
0: Mm
1: -hmm. I'll say for myself, I find it troubling and, and, and um, I guess unusually ironic that there's so much objection in the United States Mm -hmm. to taking a closer look at the fullness of our own history curriculum us history and you know I, the sort of i would call it propaganda that is mm-hmm. opposed to a more fulsome balanced truthful view of history gets painted as well we object to critical race theory when it doesn't take much research to realize critical race theory is you know a an approach and Mm -hmm. who wouldn't want a truthful fulsome approach to anything if you if you're the you know the victim of a crime and you are hoping that the local police detective is able to find the perpetrator you want a truthful fulsome look at the facts um not just one side but it's a it it seems to me like this kind of um fear that
0: mm-hmm, absolutely
1: the you know a more complete accounting will either make people feel so bad or kids feel so bad about who they are, and I just feel like that that means that maybe we're worried that teachers can't do their jobs in contextualizing historical information but it is a complicated issue to try to overcome so many decades and centuries of of bias so
0: i think i think like a lot of communication though not to go too far down this rabbit hole because i'm very interested uh, in what barbara has to say uh tonight but i i think a lot of people get emotional about a thing that then changes the narrative of that thing. So in other words, if you're saying, hey, we're going to talk about um, history just in a more inclusive way. And your response is, I think that will make some people feel bad. It sounds like you're suggesting that the new way that we teach this will only be about making one group of people feel bad. When, if we're going to talk about it uh, you know, more in, in total or, you know, bring more of it to bear, then that means we will be talking about contributions of people as well. So when you say, you know, you may be talking about some of the things that happen to people of color in the country, but it would be just as wrong to say then that that's the only contribution that white Americans have had to American history right. is is, you know, somehow victimizing or enslaving people of color. That's not the only contribution, uh, as we've learned throughout our history going forward. There are a lot of great things that have happened that have made the country great, that are contributions from everybody. And I think if we were looking more at uh, bringing some of those things in, as well as some of the pitfalls that we don't want to repeat, then I think, it should make everybody feel, I would think a little more at ease about doing it, but that's that's just my thought. Maybe I'm just. I
1: think yeah. I think you should stop being a filmmaker and be the new secretary of education. That would make me really happy.
0: If they uh, answer my emails, we may have something going on, <laughs> I keep sending them.
1: Okay. So tonight we have Barbara Rancunas with us. Barbara, thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell us a little bit, um, So our viewers and our listeners can understand your background, what it is that you do now, what you used to do, what you bring to the work that you do here in Exeter, New Hampshire. And then David and I have so many questions for you about some of the specifics that you have uncovered in your work, including, spoiler alert, the fact that there were white people who owned black people here in New Hampshire, despite maybe people know that yeah (laughs) that uh we're north of the mason dixon line and they're you know that slavery was a thing only characteristic of people in the south so lots lots to uncover here but let's start with a little bit of a brief bio um
2: well i currently work in the field of public history which means Mm -hmm. that i my job is to and collect and interpret and care for the history of one particular place for the general public. So everything I do, really, I have a requirement to share. I work at the Exeter Historical Society. I'm the co-executive director. I began my work there as curator. My other co-executive director is Laura Martin. who does most of the technical work and a lot of the programming. Um, whereas my job is more um, working in the archives and looking at collections. So, Exeter, New Hampshire is a fairly typical New England town. Um, We consider ourselves old because we were organized, we've we've never incorporated, but we we were organized in 1638, which is pretty early on if you happen to be a white person and you are from another place. If you happen to be indigenous, you know that the town goes back a long ways before that. (laughs) Thousands and thousands and thousands of years, there are people in this area. Brought here by the river systems that um, that support our area. So, the land we call Exeter's been here for a long time. with people here? So, when I got the job, my background was as a high school teacher, and um, out of work because I had children. Which you know, there is a definitely a maternity penalty there if you don't. Yeah, want there's to another show there. Nine yeah. hours of daycare <clears> every day. So. Um, so I was looking for work, and I had an an archaeology background as well, working up in, in Maine on some historic sites. So I, I understood how to handle artifacts and management. And part of our collections is artifacts. Most of it is paper-based, but a lot of it's artifacts and a lot of photographs, too. So anyway, um, I started here in the year 2000, so I've been there 22 years this summer. Oh. The collections that we have are typical of what you might find in a you know an old colonial New England town right? There's founding families, and everyone knows them. They go back to God, and um, the Gilmans, the Folsoms, and there's still a lot of people related to those families who come in. We have a lot of people who come in to do genealogy work, and I got very good at doing genealogy work. You know, I know how to find, uh, you know, records on all of the white people who lived here, and, you know, there's some, mm-hmm. some tricky people. There's certain time periods when they weren't writing down who's born when and where and that's tricky and people just seem to spontaneously come out of nowhere (laughs) and um out of all the collections i had a thin archival box of material that was labeled african americans Mm. and um when you run the numbers what you discover is that exeter was a far more diverse town in earlier times they always say that in earlier times and what is meant by that is that um The first enslaved Africans arrived in New Hampshire in Portsmouth in I believe it's 1645 it's pretty early. Um, Valerie Cunningham out of Portsmouth with the um, New Hampshire Black Heritage Trail has written some really good work on that she she began to uncover people in Portsmouth. When I say uncover, it's because it is hard to find people. And there's uh, the research for that is quite different from everything that I was used to. So Um, I had been left this this thin file of um, collections of accounts of Exeter's black people as written by Exeter's white people, and most of these accounts were written in the later parts of the 19th century, and they all had a kind of a minstrel show-like air to them. They, They would quote Exeter's uh, black population speaking in a dialect as though they were from the plantation south, which we, you know, can't possibly be true. So um, after some you know soul searching and some upheavals in the national politics, realized that we need to find more about people who lived here. I mean we, we have to do Exeter's history. We have to do all of Exeter's history. And the, the real goal was to find uh, documentation, for who was living here, where these folks were living and find their own words if possible, which is the harder part. Mm -hmm. Um, Recently, I've also been following um, kind of a, not really a plot line, but when you do history, everything becomes a story, everything, even your own grandparents, you know, it all becomes kind of a story. So you you get involved in storytelling a lot and then realize I'm talking about real people here. Mm -hmm. Um, So, um, and when I walk around town, um I'm, I'm walking in a haze because uh, in my mind, I am seeing people in places that are not there now. So when I walk down a certain street, there are, uh, you know, in, in my head, I am reminded of the people who I know who lived there and uh, what has occurred there. So that, that's, that's one of the pitfalls of being a historian is you always have one foot in the past. And sometimes, you know, you have to shake yourself forward and remember, nope, this is right now. This is right now. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs>
1: It's fascinating. I mean, I'm just my kids are asking about
2: that. I'm a time traveler in my mind and I have to stop doing yeah. that. But it's really terrible.
1: Oh, it's well, you know, I mean people needed chemicals to do that in the 1960s. So if you you know, if you can do it I, just no, talking, walking down the street. A couple
2: of years ago, I got obsessed with whaling simply because I was listening to uh backstory, the podcast, and they were talking about whaling. I was I was in taking a shower that morning, and I all of a sudden realized that my house was built in 1775. and for a good chunk of the time that it existed it was completely lit by whale oil oh, and, yeah. um, <laughs> right. and that just wow. set me right off and I went into work and I have a team of volunteers who thank the good Lord don't ask me for why i'm asking them these weird questions but i went in that day and said, what are we working on today and i said i need you to go down to the newspaper org which is the basement where we keep the old newspapers and find out in the 1830s and 40s where you could buy whale oil in exeter find the ads and then come back and then like two wow. hours later they come upstairs from being in the basement and they tell me where they could find whale oil and then only then say why did you need that my god like, oh, i just <laughs> i needed to know where the people in my house went to get whale oil. so that's that's the kind of thing that yeah. can happen to you Mm-hmm. So when considering Exeter's Black population, which was nearly a fifth of the population, well, not a fifth, uh, excuse me, uh, nearly 5% of the population just after the American Revolution, there was okay. some reason people came to Exeter. Um, and you have to start with the understanding that there were enslaved people who lived in New Hampshire. New Hampshire is a super white state. And, yeah, we're like um,
1: 93, 94% white oh, yeah. now. yeah, <laughs> Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
2: It's it's still really high. Um, and so I think, you know, I went to school in Maine and in Maine, you know, we were we kind of learned history as slavery was a bad thing that happened in the South. Yep. That people fought a war because they wanted to keep slavery. And we were the good guys because we didn't have it up here. And then we would look around our completely white classroom and say, we still don't. But, you know, we're good we're still okay, you know, and that's, you know, it's really a, a, a mixed up way of teaching things because it it denies uh, people's history correctly. And that, you know, I, I, I can't tolerate that. I can't tolerate not knowing the history of everybody in the town of Exeter.
1: What's fascinating so, to me just before you go on that when you got there to the Exeter Historical Society 22 years ago to start your work, there was such a tiny volume of information about the, people of African descent who lived in this area. Number one, number two, it was written by white people. Number three, Mm -hmm. that writing mischaracterized people. And number four, there wasn't the kind of documentation. You probably you had fancy genealogies and birth records and probably, you know, baptism records and things like that from the prominent white families in the area. And the, you know, as you said, 18 forties or sorry sixteen forties or late sixteen thirties when the the town was um what did you say not incorporated but organized <laughs> that you know there there's so much evidence of the the separation of classes simply in those factors in who was doing the writing the amount of writing uh what was written and what you were able to find and I feel like it's as as you said and then I'll, I'll let you go on it is um that in itself to a non historian me so revealing about what what was going on and how black people and white people had very different privileges and the ways in which um you know well whoever you know if they if they were black and they had a baby or they, you know, it just, it wasn't a thing to be recorded. Uh, And that is, it's a, it's a frightening thought, but as you pointed out, nothing like that is ever taught. And I also went to public school in South Portland, Maine, and got the same uh, sort of incomplete whitewashed version of, say, you know, the Civil War, for example, but please go on.
2: (laughs) Well, I was across the bay from you in Falmouth, so we were practically neighbors. Um, (laughs) Right, and so in trying to research people, it it could be difficult because they, first of all, even knowing the names of people makes it hard. You need to know the person's name. That's where you start, okay? So how do you find a person's name? So in a population that was very much marginalized, the only way you can locate people is by looking on the margins. So we're not going to find baptismal records much. We're not going to find um, birth records. Birth records were all over the place anyway in New Hampshire. You didn't have to register your child's birth. So Mm. there's this dead zone like from the 1790s till the 1820s if there wasn't a doctor in town that just happened to be listing off all the babies he delivered then um you, you're not going to get those folks um marriages were a lot looser back then so they weren't necessarily written down anywhere um and the other problem is if a person was enslaved they may not have any kind of surname or even mm-hmm. if they did have a surname it is it is ignored so, wow. for instance, the 18, I think it's either 1800 or 1810 census, they would list all of the people of color at the very end of the census. Okay, so let's talk about marginalization first they They're at the end. And then um, on one of those two censuses, I'm sorry, I can't recall which one, they only list their first names. So we're trying mm-hmm. to track a family and we're trying to figure out who the family members are and who is living within that family. They're only listing the head of household and they're only going to give you one name. So it will say Caesar. Now there's certain naming practices that were used in especially in New England for enslaved people. So they're named by white people. And so their first names tended to be a certain, you can recognize them right off. They're Pompey, Caesar. They used a lot of names from uh, classical literature. They thought it was kind of funny that, um, that people of African descent who had lost their real names, um, come over here and then they they would they thought it was funny to give them a noble name to somebody whose social status was at the very bottom. So you see those names wow. over and over again. There there are many people, there are a lot of women named Dinah, um, or shortened to die. Where do we find their names? If it's not in the census and it's only the head of household, so they may have eight family members, and you you have no idea who they are, you know, are these children or or adults. But um, there's also the problem of uh, just trying to locate where people are, and you know we'll find them in odd places. We'll be reading the will of someone, the will of someone, and as an aside, after talking about who was going to get the real estate and who was going to get the horses, all of a sudden there's a note that you know my two colored servants, servants is code mm. in New England for slave. Mm. Um, I'm going to wow. uh, give their services to my brother. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, I located one of those. I was doing research on an epidemic called the the throat, pan, uh, the, um, throat distemper of 1735, which was a form yeah. of virulent diphtheria that came through the area. And one of the key figures in it was a minister in Kingston, New Hampshire. And his whole family dies of this horrible thing. And he comes back to Exeter where he was from in the first place. And it isn't until I'm reading his, when he's got his tombstone is in the congregational churchyard. So you think of this man as sort of a tragic hero who fought this horrible disease and saw so many people die and what a sad life he had. And then you read his will and find out he had several enslaved people
0: Mm -hmm.
2: um, who he doesn't seem to care about at all. And you think to yourself, they also went through that. They went through that epidemic and um, the minister's role in it cannot be undervalued he was there to provide comfort but in a way he also brought that disease from family to family to family as they called him from one household to another right, to visit the right. children so so one of those people was probably his driver and the other one was uh, it was a couple the other was uh you know an enslaved woman who was caring for his household as his family was dying of the same disease so they went through it as well and somehow they survived as he did um and i i don't even know their names he, he did not list their names in his will. And so um, trying to find out what happened to them after this man's death um, is is difficult and frustrating because I, I would like to know their story from, from their point of view. Um, my, when my I hear is,
0: this, I'm sorry, just right uh, quick before, when I hear this, um, I'm reminded we had a conversation, Chris, early on, you and I, about the Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter Mm -hmm. statements. And it's this kind of thing that is very difficult to articulate to people who say, well, all lives matter, you know, because then you try to say, yeah, but if you know what you're talking about historically, that has not been the case. Like even the only people who were thought worthy of being documented were you know what I mean? These, yeah, were the white people, but the the like you said, the black people who were also going through, um, uh, through the, some of the same things, and then in some cases, you know, more challenging things. Um, definitely, they're not even recorded. It's like it's like historically they almost don't exist for it, not for somebody like like barbara here so i'm sorry i just wanted to make sure that i I said that before we got Uh, it's such a
1: good point and it's something Mm -hmm. that when we did have that conversation i didn't understand the objection you know uh maybe three years ago to saying all lives matter i i i i did understand that the emphasis was on black lives being devalued for centuries what i didn't understand was the implication and this is where i think we've we've tried you and i david with our guests to shine a light on some of the shadowy nuances of as as you so often point out you know the, the nuances of concepts that are easily misunderstood and therefore mischaracterized and used to perpetuate people's anger or stereotypes or something, or just say, no, I, I will dismiss this whole idea because um, of this mischaracterization. When what we really wanna say is timeout, before you dismiss it, let's understand it and you know what i i guess i didn't understand that when somebody said well don't all lives matter all lives matter that the the subtext is you know and it's clear to me now and especially barbara w- with the explanation that you just gave you know just how important it is to especially for a white person to understand if you say all lives matter it is You know, on the surface, a like a true factual statement, but in the context of social justice, it is the subtext is, and they always have. Um, Mm -hmm. when that's not the case, and I, I, you know, when we, I don't know where to start sometimes with people who object to revising, updating, enlarging uh, and, and making more, uh, complete history curricula because they simply say, well, like you said, David, they're focusing on the, the word critical in the phrase critical race theory. And <laughs> without just saying, well, okay, that's a theory that can drive our revision of this curriculum. Um, they get lost in misunderstandings. And I'm, sharing with our audience that i myself have gotten lost in misunderstanding so i'm not being judgmental in i hope in some sort of arrogant way like well i've always understood this but those poor people who don't understand you know too bad for mm-hmm. them no no, no. like mm-hmm. this is this is i feel like this is this is the cutting edge of what we should be doing more of in like understanding some of these nuances. So like Barbara there, I saw advertised maybe last week on Netflix, uh, series on the Underground Railroad. And when I first had a preliminary conversation with you and said, hey, would you be a guest on our, on our show? Uh, it was because I had thought even before I saw the trailer for this Underground Railroad series that I'd heard whispers here and there of maybe there had been some role that Exeter played in helping enslaved black people escape to the North from the South at some point. And and you set me straight and said, well, that might make some people feel good but it never happened not in exeter um exeter doesn't have a part in that that we know of and yeah, we know
2: of it's yeah we yeah. haven't found any evidence the underground so, railroad is tricky because i think it's there's a lot of uh, white people want to be the hero of the underground railroad so yeah. they want everybody yeah. wants their house to be a station on the underground railroad so <laughs> starting in the 50s and 60s anybody who had a, a you know a hidden room in their house immediately leaped to the conclusion that yeah there this was the underground railroad and we have a house that's next door to us that is I would say one thirty-second of a mile away from the river and the story in Exeter was that this house which does in fact have kind of a room behind a room because that's the construction it has built in um, bookcases and such and the story was that there was a tunnel from this house to the river so that somehow magically people would arrive in town I don't know how they got here um, <laughs> and then they would hide in this house and then they would be sneaked down to the river where they would be spirited away to freedom and and I mean there's there's no street lights back at that time period you you could just it's dark you just yeah you don't, you, I mean, you don't need long, a tunnel you don't need a tunnel um mm-hmm. and um you know Chris as you probably know all of our underground anything in in this neighborhood is we have springs that go right yeah, through Yeah, it's there. water. So keeping You're not going to go... would have been extremely difficult and everybody would yeah. have known about it because you'd have to build it. So yeah. um, yeah, I have never found any evidence that the Underground Railroad came anywhere near Exeter. People who were escaping on the Underground Railroad frequently took what we would consider to be almost public transportation. They hit on boats, they came on trains, yeah. they did run through the woods occasionally and they were helped by one another more than a lot of white people. There were white people involved. I mean, we're not going we to be too short-sighted here but um it's it's not as um it's probably not as organized and it was also a very short time period when that was happening um so we really don't have any evidence i don't have any any accounts in exeter no police reports no fugitive slaves that were trapped in town nothing like that happening so i just don't have any evidence so
1: can you tell us about my stand
2: is probably not
1: (laughs) yeah yeah until
2: probably not. unlikely
1: until yeah it's um until we have some evidence but for now no and it's again it very revealing and once again i'll point out that i'm you know talking about myself as well that hey that was my first question to you again before i saw this trailer like barbara this is what i heard um you know of course hoping that there was something interesting and redeeming about white people who were here in 1600 1700s Um, alas uh, and it's as you said and as david said it is a mixed bag of what we would look upon now and say you know that was just that was unjust you did tell me about a couple of individuals as as challenging as it is given the dearth of you know records you know the same detail that white people kept of themselves but can you tell us about the t- the two individuals that um, who of African descent that you have learned about and and I think, not just their names and, and whatever else about their identities, you know, but something about their lives and people I think would be fascinated to know how you came across this information, because as you have pointed out, there isn't nearly as much um, for all the reasons that we talked about, but tell us about those two people.
2: Well, we'll start with by saying that um, after the American revolution, And and the American fighting forces was probably the most integrated fighting force that the United States had until probably the Korean conflict. Hmm. So um, if a man was enslaved and got permission, he could serve in the American forces. And if he served a certain amount of time, he would be given his freedom. So um, in New Hampshire, a lot of people took advantage of that or managed to do that.
1: And you so, said we're talking about the Revolutionary War. We're talking about the Revolutionary
2: yeah, okay. War, right. They mm-hmm. could give their freedom. They could also get their freedom if they served for the British. So let's let's not forget that, too. Really? And, yeah, the British oh. forces would offer the same thing, and they'd offer them land. And after the war, they they got land, and it was in all the worst parts of Canada. So <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> it didn't really work out that well. Mm-hmm. Um, so so we'll take it as wow. an example. And, and there's quite a few men who settled after the war in Exeter. They're from the surrounding towns. But they settle in Exeter and the frustrating part for a researcher is that we know that they served in the war and we know more about them after the war, but we don't really know where they came from. So Jude Hall was a man who was uh, enslaved in Kensington. And um, another note to have is that people who were enslaved in New Hampshire don't always have the same naming pattern. So the name Hall, we have no idea where he gets his surname. Mm. Um, the, the two owners that we know of are not named Hall. One was named Blake and I can't remember the one off the top of my head right now, but of the two owners he had that we know of, um, neither one of them was named Hall. So we don't know where he gets his name from. I don't know anything about his background other than he came from Kensington. And so hmm. he plops into my historical record as a full grown person signing documents. He was literate, signing documents to join the American forces. We know that his uh, previous owner had sold him to a man he didn't particularly care for. And we don't know the story here, whether he ran away to join the military, which is doubtful because he joined right here. <laughs> he would go far mm-hmm. if you yeah. were trying to escape. Um, but he could have, or he could have cut a deal with uh, the person who, who owned him body and soul and said, "You know, I, I will serve if you don't have to. That's a possibility, we don't really know. So we don't know much, we, I, I don't know his parents, I don't know how they were enslaved. I don't know where they were from. I know nothing about his background. He serves in the American Revolution and he is there from Bunker Hill right through to the end. He serves throughout the entire war. I think it's like eight years. And after the war, he is given his freedom. He comes back to this area. Kensington is the town right next to Exeter. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: He marries another woman of color from the area. She is actually biracial, her mother, this is uh, one of uh, Caesar Paul's children, uh, Rhoda. And she is, her mother was white, her father was black. And so he marries her and together they have eight children. He eventually winds up living on a parcel of land that is given to him. but I think it's only the use of it because I cannot find a deed. And he and, he and Rhoda have eight children, four girls, four boys.
0: Mm.
2: Now he has served in the American Revolution, right? to earn his freedom, his own freedom, and the greater country's freedom. His wife is a free woman from birth. All of his children are born free in the town of Exeter. None of their births are registered. His um, marriage is not registered anywhere. We know this because, as again, try to find their voices. He applies for a pension They were uh, Revolutionary War soldiers were eligible for a pension in 1818. So by then, he's older (laughs) at this point in time. And in his pension application is when we start to get a better picture of what his life was like after the revolution. He states that his marriage was never registered. His children's births were never registered. Um, After his death, when Rhoda applies for his widow's pension, she has to state that again. They need to get affidavits from people in town stating that they lived as a married couple. I mean, they're together Mm. since like 1790 something, and they have eight children together, and yet they have to have people testify that they are married. And then Rhoda has, says straight out that they have they cannot find his just discharge papers. So they go back and they find his commanding officers at various times and they have to write, these are all white people, of course, are writing affidavits saying, yes, I recall Jude Hall. So he is a, a free man from that on. There's no paperwork. There's no manumission papers. There's nothing stating you are born free. Why would you have that? No white person would ever consider mm. needing something like that. Certainly, uh, if you were of African descent, you don't have it either. So of his eight children, he has three sons. And there's limited things that you could do for a living if you're living in New England and you are of African descent. It's hard to get into the trades. And um, so Jude spent the rest of his life doing what we would consider to be day labor. So he assists in various things. He helps people if they are clearing land. He helps people haul things. He lives out on on a pond that is now called Jude's Pond, where he was, he could fish and perhaps sold the fish. He's living in a two-room cabin, so he's probably just barely feeding his family. But he's trustworthy enough that when there is a murder trial and he is somewhat involved in in helping out the victim, um, he actually testifies. And because we have the testimony records, we can hear his voice And what he does not sound like is a southern plantation person. (laughs) Mm. He sounds very Mm -hmm. New England, which is not surprising. He was born and raised here. Of his three sons, three of them uh, wind up enslaved during their time period. With limited ability to earn a living, many uh, young Black men found themselves going to sea, working as mariners in various trades. And three of Jude Hall's sons did that. The embarkation point for here was usually Newburyport, Massachusetts. So we have accounts of what happened. One of his sons, Aaron, is on a ship and it goes to the West Indies and he is never heard from again. Hmm. And word gets back to the family that he was somehow enslaved and they they never find him again. We don't know what happened to him. Another son, William, also ships out to the West Indies gets captured there and enslaved for they say 10 years we, we don't really know because it all hinges on his mother got a letter from him years later but we don't have the letter so I don't know exactly what it says but the account of it is that his mother received a letter after after his father's death and he said that he was enslaved in the west indies for 10 years and then escaped to england where he worked on a collier ship between um I think it's Liverpool in London, and he was captaining the ship. So he never comes back to Exeter. He does get word back to his mother that he is living. And I would love to track him and find his life in England and find out, did he have family? What did he do after that? Mm -hmm. Um, My tentative attempts to do this through the British archives has not been helpful because his name is William Hall, which is a very common name, Mm. (laughs) as you can imagine. And with no designation of what your race is on on something like a census record over there, we have no way of knowing who is, who is the William Hall from Exeter. So we would like to track him down. We could do it through DNA. I need Henry Lewis Gates to help me out on this.
1: <laughs> and just as an <laughs> aside, what, what would they have been? Would it have been sh- <laughs> like sugarcane plantations in the West Indies? What yeah, the West Indies.
2: By? You know, the, the, um, the pandemic has allowed me to do things I never thought I could. And I got to take an online course through the University of Edinburgh about the Atlantic slave trade from the British perspective. And the uh, the cruelty of the West Indies is is absolutely appalling. Uh, people were brought there just to work through their lives, their short lives. So they're they're kidnapped from their homes on the west coast of Africa and brought to the West Indies. The West Indies was completely converted into sugar plantations. They couldn't even grow their own food there, so food is imported from places like New England. Mm-hmm. A lot of the cod that we we um, packed away was right. sent to the west indies to feed enslaved people who were simply working their lives to death and there was no thought of them even reproducing you know how in the american south they always talk about how well once the slave trade is stopped then you have to depend on natural reproduction to have more enslaved people that women will produce more children and and that will be your next generation of enslaved people but in the west indies they they simply just worked people to death it was it was horrific so, um, you know, if Jude Hall's family ties go to the West Indies, then they are definitely survivors. Mm. Um, but more than likely, uh, the one son, Aaron, probably perished there. Um,
1: and-, and Aaron and William would have would have would have come on a ship, let's say, you know, as you said, maybe from Newburyport, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. um, maybe. Um, and and this was a job. they were going to take a job as a sailor, mm-hmm. perhaps bringing salted cod down to the the West Indies. And as you said, born free, Mm -hmm. they have a job. And like, I presume an expectation that they, I mean, I don't know what they must've been. I was going to say an expectation that they would have stayed free. Somebody must've not told them where they were going. Um, because at the very well, they least- would have
2: known they were going to the West Indies, I'm sure, because they usually would know where the ships were going to go. Okay. But I don't think their expectation was that they were. Well, they may have known they were in terrible danger, but you know that the, the um, it, it, you know it, it happened that people could be just kidnapped off the ship, and you know that that kind of thing happened anyway, and that's, that's why we got involved. In but the only thing the War is- of 1812 was the impressment of soldiers uh, of yeah. sailors, right? So we know that that happens.
0: Yeah. Even in even in country though, um as far as the US, I mean you're you're as free as some the grace of white people.
2: Yes, if they'll allow you to see
0: You know what I mean? Like yeah, it, yeah you can have yeah. your papers and you can have a but you're you're free and and that's another thing I'm saying that's that's a nuance if you will that's rarely understood is yep. that you are your freedom is is not as cemented as yeah. other people. Your freedom is, is tenuous. Well, and that's I mean? and so
1: right. That's, that's, that's a lot of what's behind the talk, right? It's going
2: to depend on, you know, who knew you.
1: Yeah. Right. And
2: that, and that's what it would come down to sometimes is who knew you. Their other son, James was only 18 when he also decided he was going to uh, set out to sea, and he signed on to be a cook. And when the, um, Ship got to Alexandria. There's a difference of opinion as to what happened in Alexandria. Um, hmm. Rhoda Hall always felt that the ship's captain, Isaac Stone, sold him into slavery there. Mm-hmm. That that's that's what she thought happened, and she testified to that. So we have her words again. We have her words in an affidavit, not testimony, but in an affidavit. Um, and
0: that was the other thing I was going to say. Is some of your freedom depends on whether you become currency? Do you yeah. know what I mean? Right. Too yeah. Yeah.
2: He may have been very valuable
0: to sell. Mm
2: -hmm. Um, Stone comes back and says, no, he deserted. He was a bad sailor. And he claimed that he deserted in Alexandria. He never saw him again. He thought he got off the ship and got drunk and they never saw him Mm. again. So difference of opinion there. Um, Other people later spotted him in New Orleans. And they said that he had been enslaved on a plantation in, I think it's Kentucky. And he was owned by a man who was a he was a French man who was a doctor. It's another, like I said, we need Henry Louis Gates. I need to find out what happened mm-hmm. to James. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, those stories just, just kind of pinpoint to you how, how insecure freedom could be even in the North. Yeah. The other story yeah. I was telling Chris about on this quick phone call that we had was a man who lived um, on the other side of our neighborhood uh, whose name was Henry Mainjoy. Henry Mainjoy was considered, a, you know, whenever they write an obituary, they will say he was a solid citizen, very well respectable man. That's kind of a backhanded compliment, as if if the (laughs) assumption would be that he wasn't. But here he was. So they like to give you the notable. Uh, Henry Mainjoy was born uh, near Senegal in Africa, on the west coast of Africa. And when he was about nine or ten years old, um, he is kidnapped. And he gives an account of this in the 1870s, which is after the point of time where you hear a lot of slave narratives, because those come through during the abolitionist time period. But before you start getting too much of a romanticization of the the old plantation south, which happens a little later. So he's right in between those two time periods. And he's probably speaking to John Templeton, who was the editor of the Exeter Newsletter, also a neighbor because he lived in my house. And um, the account he gives, it starts out sounding very much that it is Henry Mainjoy's words. And he recalls that he was about 10 years old and he was living with his family in a small village. And his parents had always warned the boys to be careful because there were slave. um, There were slavers in the area who would kidnap them and they'd never see him again. And he remembers the day he was out playing with his friends. So he was with a group. And they were surprised from the woods and some men came out with guns and the other boys managed to run away and he didn't make it out so fast. And then he's marched about two weeks to, he says, Senegal itself. So it's a city there. And he was kept in this dreary, horrible place. And then the story kind of takes a turn because from there and he recalls his childhood he tells he tells templeton all about the childhood about how he lived with his family and they primarily were uh, they herded cattle but they also ate a lot of uh, fruits and vegetables that he recalled and it was a pleasant life he didn't have to wear much clothing which for some reason john templeton thought was amusing but i mean it was warm there (laughs) he wouldn't have needed to (laughs) And he recalled his parents. And so, so then he's in this, he's he's entrapped in this, this enclosure. And then um, a man comes in, a white man, one of the first he had ever seen, and he purchased him for $25. That's mm. what uh, Henry Mainjoy remembers. He's purchased for $25. And Templeton says, and from here he was a very lucky boy because he was purchased by Noah Emery of Exeter, New Hampshire, who, after a sailing voyage, brought him here. And here he learned all of the uh, the wonderful things that America could offer him. He learns to read and write, and he is, you know, civilized. Um, mm-hmm. And that happens in, in 1809. That's when he is brought to America. We're still trying to track down the uh, shipping records that are going to show that. We're narrowing it down. But that's probably a true date, not just because Henry Mainjoy himself remembers it, but because later when he applies for his US citizenship, um, the son of Noah Emery recalls the same date. That's his testimony. He says, yes, this is Henry Mainjoy. He is from Senegal and he was brought here, brought here by my Mm -hmm. father in 1809. Now here's the problem with this whole story. If he was purchased for $25 and it is 1809, it is illegal to bring enslaved people into the United States at that point. And it's not because it's some sort of state law. It is in the U.S. Constitution that the slave trade would end in, I think it's 1806, 1807. So this is seriously illegal. So throughout his life, he seems to have been reminded and told that he is not enslaved. (laughs) But was he really a free man? I mean, Noah Emory purchases him for $25 and he he doesn't bring him back to the child's parents, who were probably grateful, would have been grateful to have him back. No, he kidnaps him and takes him across the across the ocean. So, you know, kidnapping. Yes, he was kidnapped by slave traders, and then he was trafficked by Noah Emery. The story gets weirder though, because he lives with Emery until he's 21. When Emery dies, he does learn to read and write. He does have the advantages that they talk about.
1: And I'm sorry. So was, would he have learned from? Would it have been Emory or a family member who, who would have taught mm-hmm. him, or
2: more more likely, he went to Exeter Public Schools,
1: okay, which
2: mm-hmm. were known to have to to uh, not be too they always they were always integrated yeah exeter public schools were always integrated because charles tash's whole family goes to the exeter public schools and his his father and the cutlers they all uh make sure that their kids go to the public schools so the whole
1: children would have also gone to exeter right
2: yeah yeah and um the the little girl that um cabria baumgartner is trying to study rosetta morrison who lived um up the street as well she was clearly educated because she goes on to a you know, to become a teacher. So we're just trying to track down, did the family teach her or did she go to public schools? But they had the opportunity and there was a school right up the street on Park street. So more than likely he went to school there. He is mostly known as Harry Emery during his childhood. Okay. And after Emery dies, after Noah Emery dies, Henry is then given his time. In other words, he is allowed to, um, to be an adult now that was the legal age anyway at about the age of 21 when I, a boy was considered um, legally free from his father's household anyway even with white kids that's when most apprenticeships ended so the age of 21 is kind of a magical time and it just happened that uh, henry happens to get to that age just at the same time that the person who brought him over from africa has died so he marries um he marries another uh, a woman from Portsmouth and they have children together, and we couldn't find listings for the children for the longest time looking through birth records until we looked at the records of Dr. William Perry, and he writes the children's births down and gives their last name as Emery. So he lists the parents as being Perry and Phyllis Emery. And so we're looking at this going, what? And Harry then names his first two sons. He names one of them Noah E, and the second one he names John E, middle middle initial E. It's, I don't know what it is, but it's probably emery <laughs> mm-hmm. because he changes his family name to Mainjoy, which he spells M A I N J O Y. In spite of the fact that townspeople are referring to him as Emery as his last name, he uses Mainjoy. This is a name I haven't been able to track anywhere. When I look through census records to find out where the name Mainjoy comes from, I can't find it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes in Exeter it's written as Manjoy, M-A-N-J-O-Y, but I have his signature and he wrote it as Mainjoy, M-A-I-N-J-O-Y. So he names his first two sons after the man who brought him here from Senegal and that man's eldest son, John. Wow. Um, he has to apply for citizenship in 1848. Now remember, we don't. his legal status is that he is considered a free person, but he wasn't really free because he's brought here and he is in the household of Noah Emery. Was he a servant? Was he treated like the other children? We, we just don't know what his legal status was at that point. And he is from another country. So in 1848, he applies to the state of New Hampshire for naturalization so that he can become a U.S. citizen, because he isn't even a U.S. citizen. And in that record, which I found up at the state archives, he uh, has affidavits, one from John Emery, who recalls and relates the story about how his father brought him over from far away in Africa. Um, And he even says, 1809, I'm like, you're you're ratting out your dad, he's... He's breaking mm-hmm. the law here, <laughs> mm-hmm. but I think it was important to Henry Mainjoy to get that, and he is, he becomes a naturalized U.S. citizen in 1848, which is quite interesting, because later the Dred Scott decision would state for the record that it, is, that Black people are not citizens at all, mm-hmm. and here's Henry Mainjoy, who finally has a piece of paper, and I wonder if that had something to do with it. Um, or I mean, he does this before that particular ruling comes down, the fugitive slave law is about to be passed. He was probably concerned about that and needed some sort of documentation of who he was and why he was here. He makes sure that in his citizenship application, he he uses the name Mainjoy. All of his children are later named Mainjoy. Two of them serve in the um, American Civil War in the Navy. Um, He has one who goes to sea and becomes a whaler the first whaler i managed to find in exeter mm-hmm. remember i told you i had a thing about whaling yeah. um, <laughs> mm-hmm. um that's one of the sons um, and his granddaughter um who goes to the robinson female seminary which was our sort of fancy girls school becomes a teacher and cannot teach in new hampshire in exeter anyway because there's no black teachers in exeter so she left And Mm -hmm. she goes down and eventually educated
1: in Exeter, but yeah, they wouldn't let her teach. teach. This is
2: Mm -hmm. Henry Mainjoy's granddaughter. Her name was um Medora Bailey. And you see, a name like Medora Bailey, you wouldn't that does not sound like a a black name. So we can't even find people like the Robinson Seminary. We didn't realize she was there because they don't write down a person's race, which yes, good for them, but not so helpful for us. There are times Mm -hmm. we need to be just a little bit racist so that we can find their records um but that was not one of the times yeah. so medora bailey winds up she marries a man named william jason who is the first principal of the university of delaware or delaware state excuse me which is a historically black college and she teaches there as well from exeter new hampshire you know and um mm-hmm. uh, but she couldn't teach here she she winds up teaching at a, at a black university which is great for, for the, for them. Right, <laughs> That's great right. for us. <laughs> so That's digging amazing. out our history to find people can be tricky because the trail grows cold and because uh, we have to look for these, these oddities within our history. So Harry Mainjoy is a complex person. He yeah. was a complex person. He seems both grateful for uh, having come to New Hampshire, but you wonder What his life was like, uh, you know, without his parents and his family that he he never saw again, probably never communicated with again.
1: And um, there were never any consequences for for Noah Emery.
2: No, of course not. In fact, he's almost viewed as the white savior for Mm. having brought Henry Mangel here. Wow, you know, and you wonder why he he names his children for the family that brought him here. So it's. It's a complicated story um,
0: right
2: you know we don't we don't know exactly what motivates people to do the things they do but a lot of it kind of goes around what what is what is it to be free you know mm-hmm. um, at that time period who who's free and who isn't
1: yeah. because your your marital status, your citizenship your Employment, Both. your birth, all could be called into question. And as David right. said earlier, and you've given us some examples of, all very capricious, all at the whim of the the nearest white person who could testify for or against you or provide an affidavit um, about your status. Mm-hmm. And you know, David has done some amazing work on this question of status and we do workshops together that call people's attention to that and um, and 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 how they in contemporary society are treating people with higher or lower status equal to theirs or not equal to theirs and it just so much of your narrative Barbara and I'm so grateful for the the detail, um, much of which, as you said, is missing, but much of which you have also been able to find enough to start to give us a picture of the starkly different status that, that people of African descent had in Exeter. And, as you said, it, you know, cuts right to the pith of what do you mean free? Um, I don't think I'll ever think about that word the same way after this.
0: And I'm, I'm curious too, just, um, okay. so when you took over or when you start working with uh, this organization 22 years ago or what have you, and you said there was a small volume, would you say the reason was the status assignments to that group of people or just the daunting um, task of doing what you're doing, looking up, you know what I mean? These things and, and having to mm. to dig them up, because I would imagine that that can be a thing that you know might make a person say, well, I don't know about that just because of the the amount of work that it would take to unearth. And and find some of these things. Do you know what I mean? That would be much more difficult than uh, what you normally would have to you know to deal with. So I'm, yeah, I'm it was not not for want yeah. of
2: trying. I mean, they they had given it. You know they 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 gave it some try. The difference is that we have access to more records now mm. um, mm-hmm. because there was no internet.
0: <laughs> yeah, sure. um,
2: You know, before two thousand. And simply being able to go through records on something like ancestry or family search, um, and then um, being able to access what is available. It's all about finding aids in many ways. What, mm-hmm. what, what documents can you find that will help you do this? Now, we've been going through the shipping records out of um, Salem, Massachusetts, to try and find out when Noah Emery's ships came and went specifically in the year that he would have brought Harry in because they have to list every single person on the manifest. So as soon as we can find out that exact time and date, they do have a cook on board whose name is, whose name is Harry. And they do mm-hmm. refer to Henry as Harry a lot. So I have a feeling he gets named for the cook, but um, we shall see. Finding records is, is always the trick. And you know I think that uh, my predecessors just didn't have access to a lot of the records that we can find today. Mm-hmm. I had an intern over the summer last summer and we went up to the state archives and we went through the pauper records just to find out when uh, many people when they entered the uh, you know they they needed assistance from the town and they they went into uh, into any kind of um, protective custody in a way you know they either have to live with in, in the pauper house or on the town farm they had to give a, a deposition as to why they were poor and in it they would mm-hmm. have to list who their parents were remember i said that People just drop out of nowhere and I can never find Mm -hmm. their family. And suddenly these pauper records would tell us, you know, somebody would talk about where they were from and, and who their parents were and how they came to be where they are. And they'd have to say that their parents didn't have any money either or they wouldn't be able to get in. So it was like we were reading some of the words of these people. So there was a woman named Hannah Blossom who was from Exeter. She had been married in Exeter and had a husband who was off at sea and he kind of deserted her. And she later has a child outside of that marriage. And this little boy grows up most of the time in the poor house. When he gets to be about seven years old, the overseers of the poor decided they're going to apprentice him out, right? Teach him a trade. So apprentice him out to someone, a farmer or a weaver or someone. And they do this. And then within a few weeks or months, they discover that his plan, the person they have apprenticed him to, has planned to sell him into slavery in the South, and they mm. catch him. Um, his name was Noah Rollins, and they go to court, and the boy is returned to his mother, still at the poorhouse, and he has a rough life. Later on, they try to apprentice him and teach him the barbering trade to become a barber in, I think, Concord or Manchester, another city, and that fails as well. But um, but to think that that he almost lost his tenuous hold on freedom, mm-hmm. very tenuous. Mm-hmm. I mean he's in town care already and they have control over his life already. Instead of his mother having control over his life, she's had to give yield that over simply out of poverty because she couldn't support herself. Mm-hmm. So there's there's all different levels of what is a free person and what is not. Whatever happened to Benjamin Sweat, I don't know. I really you know, don't know. We're still still looking.
1: Uh, David, I'm sure you have uh, Closing question or comment, if I could offer a a penultimate question, since we're nearly out of time. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious, Barbara, from a very personal point of view, how has your research changed your sense of racism or race relations in the United States? What perspective has it given you about what we have accomplished and not accomplished in you know the last 400 years
2: That's frustrating the things that we haven't accomplished <laughs> yeah.
0: accepting
2: accepting yeah. one another with full citizenship and full rights um, is is still challenging you know, assumptions are made. And, um, you know, you you like to think you're not racist, but you you know, you are. (laughs) Mm. That's, that's always a reality that hits home, no matter what you're, you're reading. Um, Yeah, that's a tough question. Where do you go from that? You know, it, it makes me realize how, you know, my family came over they were part of the, the great immigration wave of the early 20th century um, you know the wretched refuse of your teeming shores but quite frankly, they they may have wanted opportunity, economic opportunity, but these were not people who were at the bottom of the barrel. They didn't come here out of desperation. They came out here because they wanted a new life and they just waltzed right in and even uh, the family you know, Lithuanians and the Germans who didn't speak English when they got here, it, within one generation, they're blending right in with, with all of the uh, yeah. same opportunities that a lot of other people had, you know. Yeah. Um, it becomes more of a class system than a, um, a, a racial issue. And I, I think about that, which I've always thought of as this great American story, and you realize that 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 was not difficult for them. They were Mm -hmm. able to do that. They had opportunities simply because of the color of their skin. And um, they could live wherever they wanted. You know, um, all of these options that were open to them. Mm -hmm. Within three generations, they had college graduates. None of that was available back then. Um, Or it would have limitations placed on it. Henry Mainjoy's granddaughter may have done quite well. but um, but there were limitations placed on her. She she could only find work in certain places. She had to yeah. raise her children in a different part of the country. By the way, she named her youngest child, Henry Mainjoy, Jason. <laughs> mm. <laughs> to her grandfather, <laughs> using his
0: name. Um, so yeah.
1: That- oh, thank you for that answer.
0: When I think about the uh, the young man who went uh, on the ship to the West Indies. Um, I am sort of eerily also reminded of uh, some of the things you hear about the prison industrial complex mm. and, uh, and all the things that, you know, have happened with that post slavery. Um And and how if you don't have that experience or the possibility of that experience, it's easy for you to then dismiss it all, you know, um, as well. That was then. This is now. You know, etc. But in in one form or another, the needs or lusts that made a captain sell a sailor into slavery or or possibly three uh, or more is still exists. So as long as those things still exist, people in power or people with privilege will find and can find a way to exploit the people who don't have that privilege. Mm -hmm. And I think when we start talking about a lot of these race issues, that's an easy thing to, want to forget. I mean, shucks, I want to forget it, but I cannot, I'd be irresponsible as a man for myself, uh, for any of my brothers and sisters, and for my son and daughter too, you know, to, to make sure that you don't forget that that's still a possibility. Sadly, not that you, it will be necessarily slavery in the same exact way but do you know what I mean the dangers of you losing rights and freedoms or or those things being chipped away stripped away whatever still exists a lot of what they're trying to do with the voting uh here in Georgia is is exactly that you know um and so you know you just you just then in that sense people in this country we are not afforded the ability to say that was then, this is now, get over it, you know. And so um, I applaud you so much for the stuff you're doing. And 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 I know it doesn't it even remotely sound easy. Um, and so, you know, really kudos to you and your team for doing it and for giving these people a voice who's, you know, had none then it seems and um, what voice they did have time and people who didn't think that their lives matter, you know, would have tried to, to snuff out or, or bury. Uh, But for, for people like you. So, so thank you so much for all your insights and for, you know, putting a lot of things on, on, on my mind, I'm sure on Chris's mind and and hopefully our viewers minds too. So.
1: Indeed. And I hope Barbara, that you'll come back and, be our guest again because there's so much more to talk about but I'm like David I'm so moved by the particulars and it has changed how I think about the broader issues of as you said Barbara you know what it means to be free or as David said you know status and privilege and um it you know, it shines an embarrassing light on my own ignorance about what I have conveniently not known. And that's where I feel this moral imperative for our country to um, not be so complacent and not, you know, we're better than a partial history for the sake of convenience or brevity or preserving somebody's good mood. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you can't study the Holocaust without being traumatized. You can't study the history of this country, whether you're talking about the revolutionary war, the civil war, um, the war of 1812 or anything in between, you just can't, do it without there being some discomfort, and we're doing a huge disservice to ourselves as a society if we prioritize comfort over truth. So, please do come join us again.
0: <laughs> I'll be happy mm-hmm.
1: to. <laughs> you're doing important work. Thank you work. very much. Thank you so Thank much. You for
0: listening to "I'm Black, You're White, Now What." You can find more
1: episodes on the podcast channel, Teaching What It Takes, available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify.
0: To learn more about the work I do, visit www.preparingthepath.com.
1: And to learn more about the work I do, visit DrChrisThurber.com.